0: Well, thank you, Ed, for sharing uh, this morning. Uh, and, and in fact, in our missions focus tonight, he's going to be sharing during our Thanksgiving dinner. And, uh, and then uh, also Kenny's going to be sharing a little bit about uh, a recent trip that he had that I believe will make us most thankful uh, around our tables tonight. So we're looking forward to a great time. Uh, wasn't able to be here last week. Uh, heard great things about the service. Want to thank the team that put together uh, put that together, and I, did, I was able to listen to the message. Uh, Glenn, as usual, did a fantastic job. And uh, but let me just answer uh, two quick questions for you that I know that you have. Um, no, um, we we can't set up the auditorium like that um, every week um, because we, we don't have enough. We wouldn't have enough seats um, that way. It's actually fewer um, that way. And no, um, I'm not going to memorize my sermons. So let me just. Um, take care of that. Newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst was one of the wealthiest men of the last century. In his prime, he owned a, uh, the largest newspaper business in the world, totaling 28 newspapers in major cities around the country, to include uh, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, Washington, and Atlanta. His wealth and influence was enormous. In 1919 he began construction of the Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. It was under construction 1919 till 1947 when completed, um, boasted over 90,000 square feet of building space and uh, on a quarter of a million acre estate. That castle and adjacent buildings consisted or contained Fifty-six bedrooms, 61 bathrooms, 19 sitting rooms, 127 acres of gardens, indoor and outdoor swimming pools, tennis courts, a movie theater, an airfield, and the largest private zoo in the world. Invitations to lavish parties thrown at this castle were highly prized, visitors included – Charlie Chaplin, Cary Grant, Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart – look it up in the history book, guys um, – Bob Hope, Charles Lindbergh, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. Um, The castle also um, housed Hearst's vast art collection. He was an avid art enthusiast, scoured the world for both famous and obscure works. So vast was his collection that he owned two warehouses to store those pieces um, that this large castle couldn't contain. You see, for Hearst, the acquisition of the art was his deep passion. In fact, the story is told uh, that one day, while reading an issue of Creative Arts magazine, he saw a picture of a beautiful painting by one of those obscure artists. He was fascinated, called his agent in New York um, and told him, find the painting. The agent spoke with all his contacts at various galleries around the country, came up empty. Several months, after several months, the agent was forced to report that despite his best efforts, the painting could not be located. Hearst was not used to being told no. He was furious, fired him on the spot, hired a detective agency, told him to take, pick up where the agent had left off. They searched for months, enlisted a, uh, agents in London, Paris, Lisbon, Prague, and Oslo. Galleries and storage rooms across Europe were scoured Came up empty. So so Hearst fired the agency and hired one of its premier detectives, sent him out with the order, find the piece of art. Three months passed. By this time, now listen, Hearst had spent over a hundred thousand dollars. This is a lot of money back then, and two years in search of this piece. Finally, one night he received a call from this detective who wanted to speak to him privately. Two hours later, he was shown into the massive study uh, in the castle. He shared the steps that he had taken uh, that led to his discovery, but he warned Hurst that there was both good news and bad news. He said, Mr. Hearst, I have found the piece, and it is in excellent condition. Hearst replied, then what could possibly be the bad news? The detective paused. Well, sir, it was in your own warehouse in Santa Monica. You bought it several years ago. Can you imagine being so rich, having so much, that you couldn't keep track of everything that you had? It's not unlike the challenge that we face with all of the magnificent gifts that God has lavished on us. We can hardly comprehend, let alone keep track of the vast resources of God's grace, you see, in Ephesians 1, Paul gave us a rather long eulogy, a lengthy praise that extended from verse 3 to verse 14, and he listed many, not all, but many of the great things that God has done for us. We saw Paul pile up word on word, treasure upon treasure, overwhelming us with how the triune God involved, was involved and is involved from eternity past to eternity future, lavishing gifts of grace On his children. We saw the past work of the Father, verses 3 to 6. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of the glory of his grace, that grace that he freely bestowed on us in his beloved Son. Then he transitioned to the gifts of his Son, verses 7 to 12 present work of the Son. We have received redemption through his blood. We've received the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of His will. That is that all things in heaven and on the earth are, are eventually going to be summed up in Christ. Not only that, we've been made God's inheritance so that we would be to the praise of His glory. About now, you're starting to glaze over. Then we saw the present and future work of the Spirit. Having heard and believed the gospel, we were sealed in um, Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. We received the Spirit as a pledge, as a, and we saw that meant a first installment, a guarantee of more to come. There's more coming, and, we, and it's going to be realized with the full redemption of God's own Possession, Word upon word, Paul piled up treasures so that our minds became fuzzy, eyes glazed over, and he was telling us, children of the King, you have castles, you have warehouses that are full. We can hardly comprehend them, let alone keep track of all of them. And so now, Paul transitions to prayer, a, a, a prayer in which he thanked God for them, remember that, for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all of the saints, a prayer which he continues this morning, in which Paul is going to ask God this, in light of everything that we have received, will you help them comprehend more and more all that they already have in Christ? Will you help them Find this, that stuff in the warehouses of their hearts and their minds. Will you help them to remember? Will you help them to discover? Will you help them to understand it more and more? Look at the prayer with me. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 16 says this, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of, the, of revelation in the knowledge of Him." I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Word upon word He piles, treasure upon treasure." Folks, so often we are concerned to pray for more. Lord, give us more. We can't even make it sound spiritual. Give us more of you. That was not Paul's prayer. His prayer was this. Help us get what we already got. We spend so much time scouring conferences and books and and speakers looking for more. And we don't get what we already got. Can you imagine coming to a massive banquet table? I don't know, say, this Thursday, filled with turkey and stuffing and ham and potatoes and gravy and green beans and sweet potatoes and rolls and butter and jellies and and pumpkin and pecan pies and bowing your head and saying, God, thanks for all these wonderful gifts. Now can I have more? You know, maybe a PB&J. In this prayer... Paul bows his head and in essence says, Lord, thank you for all that you have given us. Now please, would you help us with this huge banquet table in front of us? Would you help us grasp your lavish, gracious gifts? The outline of the text very simply looks like this. Paul's request. And there's actually only one, one request we're going to find. And then as a result, uh, some purposes um, f- for the request. Paul's primary request is found in verse 17. When making mention of the Ephesians in his prayers, he asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. God, I pray that You would help them. Notice what he's actually praying for. I pray that You would help them to know You better, increase their knowledge of You that they would know you more deeply, that they, would, that they would know you more intimately. Think about that with me. He, he wants us to know God, not just know about Him, know Him. I can say that I know the President of the United States. After all, he recently rode through Boone, and I saw his bus. I, I didn't actually see him, but I saw the bus. And I can say that I know about him. I know his name. I, I know what he looks like. I'm pretty sure I could pick him out of a lineup. I, I, I know a little bit about his family. I know a little bit about what some of his policies are. But I, the, the truth is, I don't know him, and he does not know me. Paul says, I want you to grow in your knowledge. See, he uses a very specific word there. I don't want you to just know more about him. I want you to know him. I want you to grow into a deeper, more intimate relationship with with God because, listen, He knows you. That's what this being chosen from before the foundation of the world is all about. Now, as usual, we kind of have to break that down a bit to understand what Paul is saying. He says, whenever I pray for you, I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't don't let that throw you, that the Father is Jesus God. He's he's God and that He's Father, and that Jesus is Son. Well, it says, I ask that God, the Father of glory, meaning that He is characterized by glory, all glory belongs to Him. We know that glory is a reflection of His divine being and His magnificent attributes. But very specifically, just so you know, when we look at the rest of the passage, He says, Pray to the Father of glory, specifically the, the, the glorious nature of His power. He's able to do what I'm getting ready to, to ask Him. I ask that our glorious, gloriously powerful God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now we have to stop there and ask, when Paul asks for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, is he talking about a natural human spirit or is he talking about a supernatural spirit? Is he talking about my spirit or is he talking about the Holy Spirit? Now my translation, the one that is on the screen has noticed lowercase s, um, suggesting that Paul is asking that our human spirits would receive combined abilities of wisdom and, and revelation. Uh, that's a nothing wrong with that um, translation. I actually prefer the other reading. In fact, if you have the NIV, it has it capitalized s. That Paul is asking the Father to give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, now, immediately you might say we got to ask that we receive the Holy Spirit. I thought he said back in verse 14 and 13 and 14 that we already had the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But but I think that he's asking God to cause his Holy Spirit to work in us this way. That his Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and revelation because it's going to take that to get God. For us to understand God. You can't do it on your own. Paul makes this idea clear in, in 1 Corinthians, a book we already looked at, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in this passage, he is contrasting human wisdom with uh, the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Look at it. Yet we, do not, uh, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom This um, wisdom that none of the rulers of this age had understood. They, they, They couldn't get it, for had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 10 says this For to us God revealed these things through the Spirit, capital S, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man? Really. How can I I really know you? The only person who really knows you is the spirit of you living inside of you. Even so, the thoughts of God can no one know except the capital S Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the little spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those things taught by the capital S, Spirit. All through this passage, Paul is contrasting human wisdom, which we possess, with God's wisdom, saying we require the Holy Spirit to understand the things of God. So, in Ephesians 1, I believe that Paul is asking that we would receive this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, to be given divine wisdom and Revelation, so that we would, as a result, this is what he's asking for: that we would have a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God. In other words, God, would you help the Ephesians and, and, and the people of Alliance by your Spirit to increase their knowledge of you? Notice, Paul's not asking for, for more; he's not asking for greater gifts. He's asking that we would understand by His Spirit the great gifts that we already have to be able to, to know God more intimately. He wants us to know God. They not want to just know about God. He doesn't want us to know all the trappings about God, all the stuff about. He wants us to know God. Hey, listen, an illustration at this time of the year works. You buy your little toddler a gift for Christmas. I mean, you just can't wait. You're so excited, carefully chosen gift. You know he, he or she wants it. You, you wrap it up, place it under the tree. Great excitement. Child opens the gift, shows some excitement, and spends the rest of the day playing with the box. The gift came in. Now nothing, nothing wrong with that. I suppose the box is part of the gift. But you know that the real gift is the gift inside the box. You work with the child to help him or her understand The real gift is in the box. That's what Paul is praying for, that we would understand the great gifts of God and ultimately God Himself and not just become enamored with the wrappings. And it's going to take God's Holy Spirit for you to get Him. See, Paul goes on to actually build on this idea. We actually have the ability to understand the things of God because, number one, we receive the Holy Spirit of God, but number two, because we're no longer dead, That's the first part of verse 18. In chapter 2, he's going to tell us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we were made alive in Christ. Here, he says, the idea is since we have already been made alive, since we have been enlightened with those alive hearts, we can, through the Spirit, grow in our knowledge of God. Most of you know that if you have a translation um, that uses italics, those words in the italics aren't in the original language. They're simply provided by the translator uh, uh, for understanding. Now, I want you to notice that the, my translation has, and I don't typically um, do this with the NAS, um, but, 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 but notice that the beginning of verse 18 starts with the italics, I pray that, in italics, meaning those words aren't in the Greek. And by adding them, the implication by the translators is that this is another request. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, I pray that isn't in the Greek. Uh, Number two, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. We we, we take out the I pray that back up to verse 17. Look at that. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, comma, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a little awkward. It leads to the second challenge. The words may be enlightened aren't actually a request in the Greek. I want to suggest that may be should be in italics as well. It's actually a perfect participle. Lots of technical language I'm not going to go into. A better translation would be, and in fact some of the translations sitting in your laps have it this way, the eyes of your heart having been Enlightened. And so, the whole thing would read, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your heart already having been enlightened. You already have made alive enlightened hearts. When did you get them? When you were saved. Your, your dead hearts were made alive, and you were enlightened. And since um, your dead hearts are now alive, by the Holy Spirit working in and through those dead I mean, now made alive hearts, you have the ability to understand three things. So, so, so why' don't you be with me there, OK? Make the Holy Spirit work in their lives through wisdom that's insight and revelation, divine revelation to know you. Here's what I want them to know about you. See, see, Paul's not asking for more. He's asking that you would understand what you already have. Through made alive hearts and the work of the Spirit, the following three things, and this is all that led up to this. This is the important part. This is what he's praying for you for. This is what he wants you to know about God. Second point, verses, second part of verse eighteen, verse nineteen. I want you to know the following three things. Notice Paul begins the next three phrases with the words "what is" or or, "what are." I want the Spirit to give you understanding through your made alive eyes. What is first, the hope of His calling? So, what he wants you to know, he wants you to know the hope of His calling. Well, what's that mean? Hope. In the Scripture, speaks of a certain, expectant trust in God. He says, I want you to know for certainty, no wavering, the hope of His calling. And calling in Paul typically refers to salvation. Given the context of chapter 1, Paul is saying, I want you to understand, folks, listen, people of alliance. I want you to understand fully the certainty of your present and future hope because of His calling you in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand fully your salvation in Christ and the rock-solid assurance of hope that it brings. I want you to rest in the objective hope in Jesus Christ brought about by His effectual calling. He's saying, listen, I want you to know it. I don't want you to waver. I don't want you to waffle. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to doubt. I want you to rest assuredly in the hope that is yours because of his call. Listen, you already have it. Maybe you've tucked that away in a warehouse. Maybe you're in a, you've gone through or maybe you're in a period of doubt. Do I really, does he really, he wants you to take that out of that warehouse, look at it and know you got it. The hope of, his, the sure hope of his calling. Second, I pray that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Once again, I want you to notice we're not talking about our inheritance. Notice, His inheritance. And then he defines it, which is you saints. Don't miss what he's saying here. I want you to know the riches of the glory of His inheritance, which is you. Please hear what Paul is saying, because it is both magnificent and humbling at the same time. I want you to know the riches, those riches which are glorious, riches, glorious riches because they are His inheritance, which are you and the people sitting next to you. You boil it all down. You're struggling this morning believing that you're valuable, that you're of any worth. You boil all this down, and Paul is actually saying, I want you to know, by God's Spirit, I want Him to impress upon you this morning. Listen to me. I want you to know how valuable you are. So valuable that He calls you the riches of the glory of His inheritance. That's what you are. The riches of the glory of His inheritance. That's the best thing in the world. That's the best thing in the universe. One author says it this way. The point here is that Paul wants his readers to know how deeply God values and cherishes them. They are God's incredibly valuable and glorious inheritance. Just as an earthly king values treasure, uh, treasuries of silver and gold, God values His people as His wealth and glory or, or honor. All through Ephesians 1, I have been stressing that this is all about God, but I want you to understand that Paul here suddenly, very intentionally says, believers, I want you to know something. I want you to know how much God loves you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. I want you to know how valuable you are. He bought you with the precious blood of His own Son. I want you to know how important you are to God. Paul calls you God's, rich and glorious inheritance. Yeah, made so by the work of His Son, but His rich and glorious inheritance nonetheless. You've been coming here any period of time. You know, if there's one way I lean in my theological understandings, it is in the greatness of God and the comparative insignificance of humankind. There is truth in that. In fact, that's the third thing that Paul's going to want us to know, that God is really, really, really great. But here, Paul smacks me upside the head and says, Scott… Believers of Ephesus, believers of alliance, you are most precious to God. You are loved. You are valuable. You are important. You are His inheritance. He bought you. You are no longer slaves. You are children, sons and daughters of the King. Isn't it great? Now look at this closely. I want you to know the hope of His calling. That's, That's past. And I want you to know uh, that that calling will ultimately lead to His collecting His inheritance together to be with Him. That's full redemption. That's future. In the meantime, I want you to know um, the power of God unleashed to bring all of this about. I-, I want you to know that, that He is at work for you. And look at, he says, I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness of His power, where Toward us who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Now remember, that's one sentence in the Greek, so more literally, notice the italics, this would read, I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Paul emphatically piles word upon word so that we are blown away with the greatness of His power working, listen, this is incredible, on our behalf. I want you to know the surpassing greatness of his power. His power is not just great, it is super great. It's incredibly great. It's immeasurably great. That's what that word means. It's surpassingly great. That's not enough. Paul then uses three more words for power. He, he, he exhausts the words for power in, in the language. I want you to know the super, surpassing, immeasurable greatness of His power, that power which is working according to the working of His strength, of His might. Working and strength and might all speak of power with perhaps different nuances. One author describes it this way, just so we get the different nuances. Four different words for power, right? And and, and he uses, but all with maybe a little different nuance. This is the illustration he uses. When you see a bulldozer, I mean, that thing is massive. It's just sitting there and it's got those big treads on it. And you just kind of know inherently that thing is powerful. But but, but then when an operator gets gets in and and fires that bad boy up and it roars to life, you, you now know, you now sense as the ground rumbles underneath you, there's power there. Then as it begins to move toward the tree, you begin to see the activity of its power. You begin to sense that tree's in trouble. And then when the tree is bulldozed over, that's power in action. All four of those give us the sense of the different nuances of these words. That is power. He wants to get across to you that God is unequaled in, in power. In fact, one suggested that we actually read it this way. I want you to know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe with the power of the power of His power. <laughs> Redundant? You bet. Does it get a point across? You bet. Paul says, believers, I want you to know how much the omnipotent God is working for you with his mighty and great power to bring about everything that he's promised you. It began with his calling. It's going to end with our full redemption when he gathers together his inheritance. And in the meantime, God is at work with his unequaled power. No wonder in another place Paul could ask, if that God be for us, who could possibly be against us? Paul says, I want you to know three things by the Spirit with your already enlightened eyes. When you to know the hope of his calling, I want you to know, now listen, some of you need to hear this. I want you to know how valuable you are to him. And I want you to know, and some of you need to know this because you're going through some really difficult times, I want you to know how that the God of the universe, most powerful, awesome God of the universe, is at work for you. He will bring it to pass. I want you to know it. These things are already yours. I close with this illustration. This week, I was talking to Robbie Colley, and, and, and out of the blue, he told me a story. I couldn't believe when he told me the story because it illustrates so well what I've been trying to say. He told me that years ago, he had a, he had a, a man named, I don't know why that thing's popping, a, a man named William who, who worked for him. He, he loved William. William was young, poor, not well-traveled, not a well-experienced uh, man, as in the ways of the world, one day William got married. And so Robbie and Rita gave this man, young man, new bride, a couple of nights stay, just about an hour away, a couple of nights stay in a hotel in Virginia and some tickets to Bush Gardens. That's great. Later, he got a call from William who talked about the great time that they had. What a nice gift that Robbie and Rita had given them. They had never stayed at such a nice hotel. I mean, it had an indoor swimming pool, it had an exercise room. They'd never seen that before, it had an elevator. They actually rode the elevator up and down. Robbie asked them, what about Bush Gardens? And William said it was great, had everything they needed right there. And Robbie begins to get suspicious and says, what do you mean everything that you needed right there? And William went on to talk about the hotel. Took Robbie a few minutes, but he figured out they spent two nights, three days at the hotel and never went to Bush Gardens. I guess they figured the elevator was the ride and that the hotel was the gift. And here's the truth they had so much more. So, also, folks, we have so much more. And Paul wants us to know it. So, here's, what, here's my encouragement to you don't lose what you own in some remote warehouse of your heart. I want you to know the hope of his calling, it's sure. I want you to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and I want you to know it's you. He, he loves you. You are valuable to him. And I want you to know that his awesome strength is at work on your behalf. Look at that. It is his calling, his inheritance, his power, all at work for you. Can you rest in that? I trust you can. Let's stand for prayer.